Stuart Holman here with the 10th and final daily devotional in our Growing Disciples series on the book of 1 Samuel. Next week we're going to embark on a new series, but for now we are witnessing the conclusion of the Samuel-Saul-David saga, Israel's transition from a theocracy to a monarchy. Uh, we remember that at the end of 1 Samuel 28, both David and Saul were terribly compromised. David was enrolled in the Philistine army and would be likely called upon to in, in a battle to kill his own countrymen, his future subjects, in order to protect the Philistine king who'd provided him shelter from Saul within his own land. Now on the opposing battle line, Saul, desperate for God's direction and favour for his battle against the Philistines, had resorted to consulting a spirit medium at Endor. If that wasn't bad enough, the medium had actually called up the prophet Samuel from the dead, who told Saul that he and his sons would all be dead the next day. So both David and Saul are badly compromised. Uh, throughout 1 Samuel, the story of these two men has been told in tandem with narrative threads intertwined. And so the conclusion of the book is no different. Contrasting events happen simultaneously. Uh, chapters 29 and 30 complete the story of David and his men. And then in chapter 31, we're told the conclusion to Saul's story. So first to David and his men. The, the battle between Israel and the Philistines is soon to begin, but there is one more twist before it starts. Chapter 29. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He's already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, Send the man back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favour than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. So David protests, not too stridently, but keeping up his deception to the very end. Um, but relieved of their obligations to Achish, first thing in the morning, David and his men set off for their home among the Philistines. But it turns out that when they arrive back at Ziklag, the Amalekites have raided their town in their absence and they've taken off with all of their wives, their children and their livestock, along with all that belonged to their Philistine hosts. Devastated and exhausted, David and his men chase down the evil and opportunistic Amalekites. They slaughter them to recover all their wives, children and livestock, 
and all the plunder of Ziklag, which is now theirs as the spoils of battle. Although not all David's men were able to go the distance and some had to stay behind, the plunder, David decreed, would be shared equally among them. Now, this had never happened among mere mercenaries, but David has moulded his motley crew of misfits into an army with, with mutual concern, with the greater good of the whole unit in mind. And Rather than keeping a general's share of the loot for himself, David distributes gifts to all the Israelite towns that have supported or protected him throughout his whole time in exile. In short, all the wealth of Ziklag has now become plunder for the people of Israel. And in acting in this way, David shows again promise of being the kind of king that the law of Moses called for in Deuteronomy 17. He's not amassed um, a huge wealth for himself, but he's actually shared it among the people. He's displayed wisdom in dealing with his men in extremely difficult circumstances to the point where they actually want him as their leader. They respect his decisions. As a result, we might expect David to be quite a different kind of king to Saul. David gives to the people, whereas Saul has often shown himself to be self-centered and self-absorbed. Well, now on the very same day as David and his men are enjoying this unlikely victory, Saul experiences a tragic and comprehensive defeat at the hand of the Philistines. Throughout the book of 1 Samuel, David never experienced defeat in battle, nor were the Philistines recorded as ever having won a victory over Israel in battle. And so in chapter 31, we read this. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. David dare not take the life of the Lord's anointed king, even though he had easy opportunity on more than one occasion. He would never grasp power for himself. Saul's armor bearer also dared not take the life of his king, in the end, tragically, Saul takes his own life. Five simple Hebrew words record the death of Israel's first king. This momentous event requires no elaboration. The tragedy of the circumstance doesn't need to be laboured. When the armour bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons, his armour bearer and all his men died together that same day. Saul would seem to have already accepted and grieved his own death in the previous chapter, as foretold by Samuel. Uh, verse 6 reminds us that everything happened just as Samuel said it would. The king, his sons and his army were swept away in a single day. The death of any human being is tragic. Nothing speaks more powerfully of the corruption of God's good creation than death. It is the last enemy. And so we notice here that the Bible makes no judgment against Saul's suicide. But we should never think that such an act ever makes things better. 
We respect the Bible's silence and we don't condemn Saul for his final act, but nor should we think that it resolved anything or had any sense to it. Rather, it serves to magnify the tragedy. It did not lessen it. More grisly details are recorded in the concluding verses of, some, of 1 Samuel, but I think we've seen enough to know that the idea of a monarchy is not inherently better than a theocracy sustained by occasional judges and prophets in the practicalities of geopolitics then or now. It seems that a system of government or rule is secondary to the faithfulness of the people and of their leaders in whatever office the leaders occupy. What God looks for is covenant obedience and a desire to live as his people under his rule. At the end of 1 Samuel, there now seems no immediate obstacle to David becoming king of Israel and his character provides reason for hope for a better future for God's people under his leadership. But even that's not assured because a system of government doesn't save a people to God and to his ways. In our day, as God's people, we do well to pray for those in government, in, in leadership, in our justice system and with the responsibility for, for the welfare of all people. Uh, more specifically, there are those within our churches with responsibility to lead, to govern, to oversee justice and to care for the needy and the vulnerable. They also need our prayers and our active support. God alone owns all power and authority and we ask him to graciously provide us with leaders who will guide us in faithful obedience, in Christian hope and steadfast love. Will you do that now?